Welcome to the 100th episode in the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Commander Greg Swindon. To mark the milestone of the 100th episode, this podcast will traverse the Royal Australian Navy's history in 15 objects. Settling on these objects was the result of much discussion. Some are well known, while others will be, know, will be new to most listeners. All help to tell the story of the Royal Australian Navy. To tell this story of the Royal Australian Navy's history in 15 objects, I'm joined today by Mr Peter Djokovic, who is the Senior Naval Historian at the Sea Power Centre Australia, and Commander Andy Schroeder, who during his career has seen active service in Timor-Leste and commanded the patrol boat HMAS Bunbury. He was later the Maritime Surveillance Advisor to the Government of Samoa and an attaché in Washington DC. He is now the Australian War Memorial's Navy Fellow, assisting with naval input to the museum's redevelopment. Thank you all for joining me. So to the first object, and it predates the Royal Australian Navy, but helps tell the story of its formation. Andy Schroeder, what is it? Uh, good morning, Greg. Uh, this is a mid-19th century telescope from the Victorian Sloop of War, Her Majesty's colonial ship, Victoria. This telescope would have been used for navigation and for the reading of visual communications, probably signal flags. At the time, it would have been considered a modern piece of optical navigation equipment and would probably have been very expensive at the time. Consequently, there would probably have only been a few of these, or maybe this was even the only one in the ship. I guess the question is, why is uh, HMCS Victoria uh, important to Australian naval history? Well, Victoria is arguably Colonial's Australia's first warship. Colonial Victoria's wealth from gold and agriculture in the 1850s and the associated threat of foreign raiders uh, from France and Russia led uh, the Victorian government to purchase a suitable and modern warship for maritime protection. Con they wanted to be able to control the sea. In 1853, they placed an order with a British shipbuilder and by 1855, Victoria's keel had been laid, was launched uh, mid-year and then on uh, the 22nd of November that year, the ship was completed. HMCS Victoria was a composite steam sail sloop of war and at 38,000 pounds, she was more than five times the estimated cost and at the time she was described as the finest craft in the world. Importantly though, Victoria was the first warship ever ordered by and then delivered to any British colony ever. She had a length overall of uh, 50.6 metres and a beam of 8.2 metres and she drew 4.5 metres and displayed, displaced uh, 580 tonnes and was rigged as a bark but fitted with twin steam engines with a massive total of 150 horsepower. And under steam, uh, she could make 11 knots, but under steam and sail, she could do 13 knots, which is about 20 kilometres an hour. She was actually, uh, in this configuration, the fastest steamship in the world at that time. Her Majesty's colonial ship Victoria, to use today's vernacular, was fitted for, but not with, six broadside guns. When she was delivered to Melbourne, her armament consisted of only two 32-pounders and she had one pivot gun of nine feet six inches. She also carried small arms for a ship's company, which comprised 95 people. At the time, she was modern and, as her cost suggests, 
little expense was spared in her fit-out. Along with internal fittings that were very elegant, Victoria was technologically advanced with a feathering screw and she also had a telescopic funnel and steam exhaust pipes which could all be retracted when only under sail. Victoria was the first Australian raised unit to deploy on operations. This is significant. In 1860 she embarked British troops for passage across the Tasman for the New Zealand wars. After disembarking the troops, Victoria was then tasked with shore bombardment while some of her crew also saw action ashore for a number of months. After returning from the New Zealand War, she was involved in the search for Burke and Will's party in the Gulf of Carpentaria, conducted frequent rescues in the notorious Bass Strait, and even transported the first trout and salmon eggs to the fledgling fisheries industry in Tasmania. Victoria ended her naval service in 1882 and was uh, eventually purchased by the colony of Western Australia in 1894, but really didn't see a lot of sea time, and it was laid up a few, a few years later in 1897. And she was finally scrapped in Sydney in 1920. Thanks for that, Andrew. Uh, where, where is the telescope currently now? Well, uh, like, interestingly, the bulk of the uh, objects that are in the Australian War Memorials National Collection, it's in storage out at the Mitchell Annex, um, uh, the Trelaw Centre uh, in Canberra. Um, Interestingly, there's only about 5% of the National Collection's um, objects on display in the gallery, and the other 95%, or about 900,000 objects, are actually uh, stored at the Annex out at Mitchell in Canberra. Oh, thanks. No, that was very interesting about uh, uh, Victoria, and interesting that you know, we were defending ourselves or having our own naval defence uh, well ahead of the departure of British troops from uh, the colonies in 1870. Uh, Next I'll uh, ask Peter Djokovic about our second object, which is the bow of Australia's first warship. What is it? Well, the ship that we're talking about here is the torpedo boat destroyer uh, HMAS Parramatta. Uh, she was the first of six river-class torpedo boat destroyers built for the RAN uh, between 1909 and 1916. Um, of course, the RAN at the time was known as the Commonwealth Naval Forces. We didn't receive naval assent for, uh, until 1911. Uh, and when we say that she was Australia's first warship, we mean that she was the first warship purpose-built for the Australian Navy. The Commonwealth Naval Forces had inherited some, quite frankly, outdated colonial vessels upon Federation, but none of them were really capable or effective warship warships anymore. So even post-Federation, there was little political appetite to develop an Australian Navy. This was still the era in which Britannia ruled the waves, and as long as that was the case, Australia's political masters saw little need to develop an ocean-going Australian Navy. But that all changed in 1909. So by that time, the director of the Commonwealth Naval Forces, Captain William Rook Creswell, had garnered approval from Prime Minister Andrew Fisher to acquire a fleet of destroyers, which would basically provide for, uh, provide for coastal defence and support British capital ships in the region. But in 1909, British naval supremacy was under threat. Germany had expanded its own naval armaments program and Britain had, in response, expanded its own program. So an arms race was on. On top of that, the Anglo-Japanese alliance was due to expire in 1915 and there were some concerns about Japan's own expansionist ambitions. So the stability of the Royal Navy, uh, or the Royal Navy had provided over the previous century since the Battle of Trafalgar was no longer a sure thing. So in response, the 1909 Imperial Conference was convened at which the broad question of Imperial defence was to be discussed. 
Now, we could probably devote an entire episode to what happened during and around that conference, but the final wash-up was that the Australian Navy, which at the start of the year was envisioned to com- be comprised of a fleet of destroyers, was now to comprise a fleet unit based around a battle cruiser, which was HMAS Australia, and also included the cruisers Melbourne, Sydney and Encounter, and the destroyers Warrego, Yarra and our ship HMAS Parramatta. And the new Australian fleet unit made a ceremonial entry into Sydney Harbour on the 4th of October 1913. So construction on Parramatta had actually started before the Imperial Conference in March 1909 at the Fairfield Shipbuilding and Engineering Company in Govan in Scotland. She commissioned initially as HMS Parramatta on 10 September 1910 and made her initial voyage to Australia as a ship of the Royal Navy. And she was transferred to the Australian Navy after arriving in Broome in November. Parramatta was pretty active during World War I. She was directly involved in the capture of German possessions in the South Pacific in 1914. She conducted patrol work in in, uh, Southeast Asia before proceeding to the Mediterranean where she conducted anti-submarine patrols. And after the armistice, she actually operated in the Black Sea for a time, carrying dispatches between Sebastopol and and, uh, Constantinople in support of anti-Bolshevik forces there. She returned to Australia in April 1919 and was decommissioned and recommissioned several times during the 1920s. And she was decommissioned for the final time in 1929. She was subsequently sold to the New South Wales Department of Prisons and used in an accommodation vessel on the Hawkesbury River and was later sold again as scrap. But not long after that, she broke adrift during a storm and she actually ran aground in the river. And that's where she remained until 1973 when both the stern and bow sections were removed and restored. So the stern of the ship was later established as a naval memorial at Queen's Wharf Reserve, and the bow section is now mounted at the north end of Garden Island in Sydney. Oh, it's very interesting. I, I think the, the remnants of Parramatta are still lying there on the, in the mud on the Hawkes River today. They, yeah, they are indeed. Now, no assembly of objects to tell the Navy story can be complete without a ship's bell. The older ship's bell, still in existence, is from a Portuguese man-of-war dating back to 1498. Ship spells were originally used to indicate time and so regulate the changes of watch at sea. They were also used to warn of the ship's presence in fog and warships also uh, used them to strike uh, the bell in harbour for colours in the morning. That's when the, uh, the flag is placed. They were even used as a christening font with the infant's name engraved on the inside. Object number three is not just one bell, but a pair of bells. Andy Schroeder, what is their story? Well, Greg, <coughs> these are the ship's bells from the First World War ships HMA Sydney, part of the uh, fleet unit that Peter's just uh, discussed, and the German raider SMS Emden. They tell the story of the RAN's first ever engagement. At the outbreak of the war in August of 1914, the RAN's fleet unit had only arrived in Australia less than 12 months earlier. HMA Sydney was part of the force immediately sent against the German, Germany's Pacific colonies in Papua New Guinea. On completion of that uh, operation, Sydney returned to Australia in October and joined the escort for the first troop convoy from Australia to, to the Middle East. This would be carrying the troops that would become our first Anzacs. At the same time, SMS Emden was detached from the German East Asia Squadron, which was steaming east with plans to round Cape Horn and return to Germany. Acting independently, Emden had captured public imagination through her exploits in the Pacific and Indian Oceans, capturing or sinking 23 ships, engaging shore establishments and disrupting trade across two oceans. Then, on the morning of the 9th of November, Emden raided the Cocos Keeling Islands with the purpose to destroy the wireless station there and cut the undersea cable, which telegraphically linked Australia to the rest of the world. But unknown to Emden, 
The Australian troop convoy had sailed from Albany on the 1st of November with a heavy escort of four warships and was only 50 nautical miles, about 90 kilometres, away. At 7 o'clock that morning, on receipt of a distress signal sent from the island which had reported that there was a foreign warship in the harbour, HMAS Sydney was detached from the convoy to investigate. At about quarter past nine, Sydney sighted the islands and immediately saw Emden's funnel smoke. But Sydney had been already been sighted by Emden and Emden had elected to engage and was closing at speed. At about 20 to 10 that morning, Emden opened with rapid and accurate fire, her first salvo scoring hits and resulting in 16 casualties, including four dead in Sydney. Sydney's initial gunnery was inaccurate. However, by using Sydney's speed and her additional range from her heavier guns, she maintained distance and gained the advantage, which enabled her to score more than 100 hits. After a fierce battle that lasted almost two hours, Emden had lost two of her three funnels. Her foremast was gone, she was heavily on fire aft, and was so badly damaged that her captain elected to run her aground on North Keeling Island to avoid her sinking and thereby save as many lives of his men as he could. At this point, Sydney disengaged to pursue Emden's support ship, a collier. At about 10 past 12 that afternoon, the collier was ordered to heave to for boarding. Sydney's boarding party went across and found that the collier had been scuttled by the German steaming party. So, with the German steaming party and the collier's civilian crew recovered, Sydney fired four rounds into her before returning to Emden. Arriving off the island, Sydney's captain saw that Emden was still flying her battle ensign. Sydney then signalled asking whether Emden had surrendered, but received no response. The German officers that had been taken from the collier then advised that their captain would never surrender. So, at, at about half past four, Sydney fired further salvos. Quickly, a sailor from Emden was seen climbing aloft and he hauled down the ensign and hoisted white flags. The following day, on signalling the communication station, Sydney learned that the German landing party, which was left behind when Emden sighted Sydney, had seized possession of the schooner Aisha to escape. They succeeded and arrived back in Germany after a bit of a boy's own adventure really, going through Turkey and uh, arriving back in mid-1915. Interestingly, uh, a little known fact, of the three cables that, uh, that were coming into the communication station on uh, the island there, uh, Emden's crew only found and cut two and the station resumed some transmission capability early in the following days. HMA Sydney's victory secured the Indian Ocean, ensuring allied control for the duration of the war. Thanks, Andy. And I, I recall seeing not that long ago a, uh, a newspaper clipping uh, where there was an um, Australian sailor uh, holding aloft Emden's flag and calling out, alone I did it, what price me now? Which was a taunt to the politicians who had... Uh, consider that the amount of money being spent on the Royal Australian Navy was in fact a waste of money. Well, clearly this uh, engagement uh, proved otherwise and, and the Royal Australian Navy uh, was successful in uh, the first engagement as the Royal Australian Navy. <laughs> Flags, like bells, are part of the fabric of naval life. Flags are used not only to identify nationality, but also some flags are used to signal orders and pass information at sea. Object number four is a flag, and it relates to another famous World War I warship. But this time, it's a submarine. Peter Djokovic, what is this flag? 
Well, the submarine was HMAS AE-2, and the flag is actually a Turkish flag. AE-2 was one of two E-class submarines in service with the RAN at the beginning of World War One. She and her sister submarine AE-1 both saw early war service in the, uh, with the Australian Naval and Military Expeditionary Force, which captured German territories in New Guinea in September 1914 and during which AE-1 disappeared without trace. And the mystery of what happened to her wouldn't be solved until a wreck was discovered over 100 years later. Uh, her story is covered in another episode of the series. At the end of 1914, AE-2 was transferred to the Northern Hemisphere to join the naval campaign in the Dardanelles. So AE-2 was under the command of a British officer, Lieutenant Commander Henry Stoker. And in April 1915, he developed a plan to force a passage through the 55-kilometre-long, heavily fortified Dardanelles Strait and enter the Sea of Marmora. If he could do that, then he could prevent enemy shipping in the Sea of Marmora from reinforcing and resupplying Turkish troops on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Several attempts had already been made to do this, and all had failed. Uh, There were several natural navigational hazards in the Dardanelles, and the strait was defended by minefields, fixed and mobile gun batteries, uh, searchlight surveillance, and patrolling Turkish warships. So it seemed, for all intents and purposes, that the Dardanelles were impenetrable. But, as we now know, Stoker proved that that was not the case. So AET's exploits in the Dardanelles and the Sea of Memora are also covered in another episode of the series. So suffice to state here that once Stoker and his crew had, had gotten through the Dardanelles and into the Sea of Memora, uh, they caused numerous headaches for the Turks over the following five days, and they crucially diverted Turkish resources away from the fighting at Gallipoli uh, before AET was successfully attacked by a, a torpedo boat destroyer on the 30th of April and uh, forced Stoker to order her scuttling. So the crew would spend the next three and a half years in Turkish POW camps and it would be fair to say that they did not enjoy the greatest of conditions over that time. Indeed, while there were no casualties when AE2 was lost, four members of the crew subsequently died in captivity. And over the period of that captivity, the crew was somewhat scattered through a few different POW camps, but Stoker and a few of the others ended up in a camp at Yozgat in uh, central Turkey. Now, we're not completely sure who snaffled this Turkish flag, but the best of our knowledge, it was actually Stoker himself as, uh, who grabbed it as the internees were leaving the camp for repatriation after the armistice. And it now resides in the REN Heritage Collection in Sydney. Thanks, Peter. Not unusual for members of the REN to uh, purloin uh, something that belongs to another nation and bring it home as a souvenir. <laughs> Object number five of the 15 objects that we're looking at today is from the Royal Australian Navy's first flagship, the battlecruiser HMAS Australia. Andy Schroeder, what is it and why was it selected? Well, thanks, Greg. Um, This is the first World War breach from one of the 12-inch main mounts from HMAS Australia, which, as earlier Peter said, was the flagship of the Royal Australian Navy. This breach is uh, on exhibition in the Australian War Memorial's First World War Gallery. Now, between 1909 and 1913, Not only had the RAN determined that they would obtain a fleet unit, but they had had it built, delivered, and then learned how to operate it effectively. Wouldn't it be great if we could be as as quick as that uh, nowadays? HMS Australia carried eight breech-loading, 12-inch Mark 10 guns. This is the breech from one of those guns. They were some of the most powerful weapons afloat at the time of commissioning, and each turret could fire three 385-kilogram shells some 12 and a half nautical miles. That's about 23 kilometres. And that's every minute. Along with the technologically advanced armaments, Australia was also protected on the waterline by a 100 to 150 millimetre armoured belt, while the armoured deck ranged in thickness between 40 and 60 millimetres. The main turret faces, of which this breach was a part, 
were about 180 millimetres thick. At the outbreak of the First World War, HMAS Australia's mere presence, with a combination of 12-inch guns and armour, required potential aggressors to reconsider their options as Australia was considered the most formidable warship in the Southern Hemisphere. Indeed, Admiral von Spee, commanding the German East Asia Squadron, of which the aforementioned SMS Emden was a part, considered HMAS Australia to have greater firepower than his entire squadron combined. And Eric Radar, in his 1927 history of the German Navy in the First World War, stated that HMAS Australia alone could have at any time established an unconditional superiority over German naval forces in, the, in those areas of operation. So at the beginning of the First World War, the mere presence of HMAS Australia and the RAN fleet unit contributed significantly to the Allies establishing sea control on the Australian station. Thanks, Andy. I think she certainly uh, earned her money uh, with those activities during World War I. The next object talks to us about Australia's preparation for World War II. It's a ship, the men who designed her and the men who sailed in her. What is it, Peter? Well, Object 6 is the Bathurst-class Australian minesweeper HMAS Castle, Maine, which today is a museum ship at uh, Gem Pier in Williamstown, Victoria, and is operated by the Maritime Trust of Australia. And mine warfare had a massive impact during World War II. Mine technology had advanced quite rapidly between the wars and continued to do so during World War II. So there was a commensurate increase in the effort to counter mine warfare. It has been estimated that the global mine countermeasures effort during the war included more than 3,000 vessels and 140,000 personnel. So the Australian Naval Board recognised the threat posed by mine warfare well before the outbreak of World War II. And it was actually Captain John Collins, who was the Assistant Chief of Naval Staff at the time, who wrote a paper in 1938 calling for greater numbers of small ships that led to the initiation of the Bathurst-class program. The idea was to develop a fleet of small vessels specifically for local defence against submarines and mines. So government approval for the first seven Bathurst-class Australian minesweepers, or corvettes as they became known, was given in September 1939. The Bathurst-class corvettes are one of the great success stories of Australian naval shipbuilding. 60 corvettes were constructed and commissioned between December 1940 and May 1944, four of which were actually commissioned into the Royal Indian Navy. Their design drew upon the British Flower and Bangor-class minesweepers, but it was an Australian design suitable for construction in existing Australian shipyards, and eight different shipyards were employed in their construction. They were simple, they were durable, and they were versatile, so beyond their ostensible designation as minesweepers, they constructed patrol work, shore bombardment, escort duty, survey work, troop transport, stores transport, they towed disabled warships, and as I mentioned earlier, they were quite successful in anti-submarine operations. Bathurst-class corvettes sunk Japanese submarines in Australian waters. They really became the workhorses of the REN, and the men who, who served in them, most of whom were hostilities-only reservists, became very proud of the service that they rendered, and justifiably so. Castlemaine herself was constructed at Williamstown Naval Dockyard and commissioned on 17 June 1942 under the command of Lieutenant Commander Philip Sullivan, who was himself a reservist. She initially conducted escort operations in Australian waters before taking part in relief and reinforcement operations for Australian troops in Japanese-occupied Timor, uh, along with HMA ships Armadale and Kuru. Now, all three of those ships came under attack by Japanese aircraft and it was during these operations that Armadale, another Bathurst-class corvette, was tragically lost. And it wasn't the only time that Castlemaine came under attack. She received attention from Japanese aircraft a few times as she con conducted escort operations in northern Australian waters. 
Late in 1944, she proceeded north through Southeast Asia to Hong Kong, where she participated in the Japanese surrender ceremony there. And post-war, she conducted further minesweeping and survey work and later was used as a training vessel. And she was presented the Maritime Trust of Australia in 1971 for preservation as a museum ship, and as such, she represents a significant part of Australia's naval history. Thanks, Peter. It's, it's interesting with the foresight of John Collins because... Many Australians think that uh, Australia came under attack by the Japanese in 1942, but it was actually German raiders that laid mines off the east coast of Australia that caused our first casualties in 1940. So mine sweeping was very important. Yeah, we were uh, qu quite active in the Pacific and in the Indian Ocean in, in 1939, indeed. Object number seven is undoubtedly Australia's most poignant naval relic that draws strong emotions from anyone who sees it. This is the Carly Raft from the World War II cruiser HMAS Sydney. Andy, where is the raft and what can you tell us about it? Uh, this is the HMAS Sydney Carly float and it's part of the Australian War Memorial's Second World War Gallery. It's been on display since it was donated to the memorial in 1943. The Carly float is a life raft named after its American inventor, Horace Carly. And it was used extensively by Allied navies during both world wars. <clears throat> the float was donated, as I said before, in 1943. And it's used to commemorate the battle between the light cruiser, HMA Sydney, and the heavily armed German merchant raider, Cormoran, in the Indian Ocean on the 19th and 20th of November, 1941. It took place about 200 kilometres off the Western Australian coast. Both ships sank as a result of the battle, and of Sydney's total complement of 42 officers and 603 sailors, none survived, while many of Cormoran's crew were later rescued. This remains the largest loss of life for the RAN in a single battle, mainly as Sydney sank rapidly due to serious damage and bad weather, while the crew of Cormoran were able to take to lifeboats shortly before their ship blew up. The battle resulted in Sydney destroying a dangerous enemy, an enemy that was planning to lay multiple minefields in Australian waters. But it was a bitter victory for the RAN. The subsequent Navy and Air Force search for the crew of Sydney off the Western Australian coast found only a single, inflated but empty, RAN life jacket, along with this empty, battle-damaged Carla float. The loss of Sydney subsequently generated many books and theories as to what had happened to the ship and her crew. And the wreck was only finally located in 2,500 metres of water in 2008. The Carly float is a simple construction of steel tubing in a lozenge shape with several interna, internal watertight sections. The idea is that, that if one section is whole, the water doesn't flow throughout the entire raft. The tubing is then covered with slabs of cork to assist with flotation and then it's finally covered with grey painted canvas. The floats had a wooden grating type bottom which could be raised or lowered as required so that up to 15 people could fit inside the raft with others hanging onto lifelines attached to the outer shell of the raft. There was no canopy to protect the occupants from the cold or from the heat and the rafts didn't normally carry any survival stores such as food or water, medical supplies or flares or anything like that to attract attention. They were very basic but they were very effective although they could sink if too many of the watertight compartments were holed. Indeed, when the wreck of Sydney was found in 2008, several very badly damaged Carly floats were seen on the seabed nearby. This Carly float, however, was not the only one found from Sydney. 
In early February of 1942, another Kali float was found off Christmas Island, several hundreds of kilometres from where Sydney sank. This second, also battle-damaged raft, was however not empty. Inside it was the body of a deceased sailor wearing blue overalls. He was subsequently buried ashore at Christmas Island as an unknown sailor. In 2006, his remains were recovered by the Royal Australian Navy and, in 2008, he was buried as an unknown serviceman from HMA Sydney at Geraldton War Cemetery. In 2021, after many years of research by a dedicated Navy team, forensic DNA testing was eventually able to identify this unknown sailor as 21-year-old able seaman Thomas Clark from Brisbane, Queensland, who had served in Sydney as an anti-submarine detection sailor. In late June this year, the headstone listing him as unknown was replaced with one bearing his name, rank and service number. Thank you, Andy. To listen to more about Sydney's exploits and loss, you can listen to two earlier Australian Navy history podcasts on this very famous ship. Andy, you're not off the hook just yet. Uh, will you tell us about the next object? It's one that is inextricably linked to one of the most famous and most decorated groups of men and women who served in World War II. They are the iconic Coast Watchers, and Object 8 is an AWA teleradio. Where is it, and what is its story? Well, thanks, Greg. This radio is also on display in the Australian War Memorial and also within the Second World War galleries. And I've got to tell you, the Coast Watcher story is a cracker of a story. Uh, but this, this AWA teleradio 3B uh, was used by the Australian Coast Watching Organisation during the, during the Second World War. It uh, had robust component parts and could be broken down and was able to be carried to new locations with the help of about a dozen people, usually the local inhabitants. The Coast Watchers were an Australian observation network established behind enemy lines. Their role was to observe and provide information on the movements and disposition of enemy forces in the South Pacific by drawing upon local knowledge of inhabitants throughout the area. The intelligence they gathered played a significant part in the execution of the war in the Pacific. The Coast Watchers' operations were codenamed Ferdinand, from the children's storybook character Ferdinand the Bull. In the story of Ferdinand, the main character, unlike all the other bulls, refused to fight. The codename was selected as a reminder to the Coast Watchers that it was not their job to fight, but rather to observe. The establishment of a formal Coast Watching network had been discussed by the Royal Australian Navy as early as 1919. In March of 1922, 1922, the Naval Board directed the Naval Intelligence Division of the Royal Australian Navy to organise a coast-watching service. And a chap by the name of Walter Brooksbank, a civil assistant to the Director of Naval Intelligence, worked in the 1920s and 1930s to organise a skeleton service of plantation owners and managers whose properties were in strategic locations throughout the Pacific. Well, he progressed this, and by the outbreak of war, hundreds of coast-watchers had already been recruited. Responsibility for the network fell to Lieutenant Commander Eric Felt, RAN, Staff Officer Intelligence, who was stationed in Port Moresby. Felt first joined the Royal Australian Navy as a cadet midshipman in 1912 and retired as a lieutenant in 1922. He then moved to New Guinea and became a local administrator. He rejoined the Navy when the war began and was an excellent choice for the task assigned to him monitoring Japanese activity in the hundreds of islands to Australia's north. During the war, the civilian Coast Watchers were, were augmented with about 400 Coast Watchers who were Australian military officers, New Zealand servicemen, Pacific Islanders, and even some escaped prisoners of war. 
The Australian military commissioned many personnel who took part in Coast Watcher operations behind enemy lines. They were commissioned as Royal Australian, Royal Australian Navy Volunteer Reserve officers. The intent of doing this was to protect them in the case of capture, although the Imperial Japanese Army did not always recognise this status and were known to have executed several Coast Watchers that they had captured. Thanks, Andy. If you want to hear more about the Coast Watchers, I recommend you listen to two earlier Australian Navy history podcasts on the Coast Watchers, the panel being Coast Watcher Jim Burrows, one of the men who was actually a Coast Watcher during the war. Object number nine is a naval ensign. It's not Australian, but it has an Australian story. Peter, what is it and where is it? Well, to answer your second question first, where is it? Well, it's actually hanging on the wall above my desk in the Sea Power Centre Australia. It's a Japanese naval ensign, and I'll just read the inscription on the frame to explain its significance. This Japanese flag was signed by 90 members of the ship's company of HMAS Bataan on the 31st of August 1945, being two days before the official surrender of the Japanese forces. So HMAS Bataan had commissioned only a few months earlier in May 1945, too late to participate in active hostilities in the Pacific. But it should be remembered that her crew was made up of experienced sailors who had been very active in the Pacific campaign prior. Bataan proceeded north very soon after commissioning as one of several Australian ships present in Tokyo Bay for the official surrender ceremony aboard USS Missouri on the 2nd of September. I'd like to say that the flag is completely unique, but while it may be comparatively rare, it was a popular practice among Allied forces to obtain a Japanese ensign and sign it to say that they were there. But the symbolism of the ensign, that it represents the conclusion of one of the most brutal and horrific periods in human history, is quite striking. It's a constant reminder that Australian forces were involved in actions right across the Pacific and Southeast Asia. We've had quite a few episodes in this series that tell the story of RAN operations during World War II, and I'm sure we'll have more, so I won't go into that too much here, but objects such as the flag that hangs in the Sea Power Centre recognise the extraordinary effort of naval personnel during World War II. At its peak strength, the REM numbered nearly 40,000 personnel serving in around 350 ships and shore establishments and scattered elsewhere throughout the Pacific as well, such as the Coast Watchers that, uh, that Andy was just talking about. Australian manufacturing was expanded, especially Australian shipbuilding and maintenance. Three destroyers, 12 frigates and 60 corvettes were, as we've already touched on, were built in Australian shipyards, as were numerous other small vessels, employing thousands of uh, civilian workers. It saw the foundation of the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service, so women served in uniform for the first time and made a significant contribution to the war effort, especially in the intelligence world. And the Australian mainland came under attack in Darwin and other centres across Australia's top end, as it did in Sydney and in Newcastle, as well as the loss of Australian warships such as Armadale, Sydney, Perth and Yarra, among others, and the attacks on Australian commercial shipping, which led to the massive escort and convoy effort to protect merchant vessels. And most of all, around 2,000 naval personnel in the Pacific and elsewhere made the ultimate sacrifice. But beyond that, it's also representative of what has happened in the near 80 years since the end of the war. The tragedy of the war in the Pacific is undeniable and should never be forgotten, but the relationship between Australia and Japan since has developed and evolved to a point where Japan is now one of our closest friends and closest allies. And that's quite a bit to be symbolised in one piece of cloth. And just as a little postscript to the story as well, although Bataan had commissioned too late to actively participate in the Pacific campaign, she did play a significant role in operations in the Korean theatre half a decade later. Thanks, Peter. Our story now moves the Royal Australian Navy to the Korean War, 1950 to 1953. Object 10 is a very unusual piece of paper with a remarkable story. 
Peter, what is it and what is the story? So this is a really interesting piece, and I might just give a little bit of context before I get to the item itself. This relates to the Korean War, as you said, Greg. Um, the war commenced on the 25th of June 1950 when North Korean forces crossed the 38th parallel and invaded the South. So two days later, the UN Security Council requested assistance to defend South Korean sovereignty. And as it happened, HMA ships Shoalhaven and Bataan were already in the area as part of the British Commonwealth Occupation Force in Japan, and they were made available to UN forces on the 29th of June, and they commenced escort operations very soon afterwards. The RAN's involvement in the Korean War was also notable as the only combat deployment ever conducted by an Australian aircraft carrier, HMAS Sydney. So Sydney operated off the Korean coast between October 1951 and January 1952, and she undertook a second deployment in 1954 after the signing of the armistice. Her operations in 1951 and 52 were a milestone in the creation of a seagoing fixed-wing aviation force for Australia. And this was all the more remarkable given that Sydney had only been brought into RAN service in 1949 and the first RAN carrier air group was not formed until 1950. For the next 30 years, a fixed-wing aircraft carrier would be considered absolutely critical to the RAN's warfighting capability and the Navy worked hard to retain it uh, despite intense pressure on resources and the many challenges presented by evolving aviation technology. So operations over Korea brought many dangers for the flyers of the air groups of the, the, the Sea Fury and the Firefly aircraft. Three were killed, one was wounded, with nine aircraft lost. In addition to having to cope with difficult flying conditions in the Korean winter, heavy anti-aircraft fire meant that the prospect of being shot down, probably behind enemy lines, was very real. Aircraft were hit by flak 87 times during the 2,366 sorties conducted. The aviators were equipped with several items to help their survival and evasion in the event that they were shot down. Now, amongst these were what were nicknamed blood chits. These were silk sheets with local language requests to help the survivor get back to allied lines, promising a reward. And this is the item that we're talking about here. This blood chit is a rectangular cloth printed in the top half with the flags of the United States, United Nations, Great Britain and South Korea. The bottom half has text in Chinese, Korean, Japanese and English and it reads, I am an American United Nations flyer. My plane has been shot down and I am helpless. But I want to get back and fight again for the peace of the world and your country. If you will help me and yourselves by getting me to the nearest American unit, my government will reward you well. Help us and we will help you. Now, this particular blood chit ironically carries a blood stain from the single member of Sydney's air group wounded in action, although it was never actually needed for its intended purpose, thankfully. The sheet was carried by then-Lieutenant Peter Goldrick, a pilot in 808 Sea Fury Squadron. On the 5th of January 1952, Goldrick participated in a strike on gun positions in the Yisong River on the north side of the Han Estuary on Korea's west coast. He was hit in the right arm by a bullet during this sortie. The bullet was slowed by first having passed through a lead message carrier and passed through his right arm, it missed the bone but then lodged in his upper body. And despite the shock and pain, Goldrick managed to return and uh, land safely on board Sydney, which was quite a fillip to the morale of the air group and the ship's company. Goldrick was sent home to Australia to recuperate and rejoin the squadron when it returned to Australia in March. And now his blood-stained blood chit now resides in the collection of the Australian War Memorial. Uh, thanks, Peter. I heard a rumour that uh, after he was shot and returned to the to the ship that because he couldn't fly, uh, that the Navy actually stopped his flying pay. Well, that's right, yes. His, his flying pay was stopped for the, for the period of his recuperation. And, and on top of that, uh, he actually applied to have his flight suit replaced, obviously, because it, it had been shot, but also his pyjamas. 
which raised a few questions as to why he needed his pyjamas replaced. Well, given that he was flying in the middle of the Korean winter, he actually wore his pyjamas underneath his flight suit to try and keep warm. So they ended up being pierced by a bullet as well. And I suspect that the Navy probably took a dim view on uh, replacing his pyjamas. Uh, for those interested in uh, more information on uh, the RAN in the Korean War, an early Australian naval history podcast on HMAS Sydney has two of her pilots, Dr Fred Lane and Commodore Norman Lee, speaking about their time in Korea. Between 1965 and 1972, the Royal Australian Navy joined the Army and the Air Force in operations in the Vietnam War. The Navy transported forces to Vietnam, primarily in HMAS Sydney, which earned the nickname the Vung Tau Ferry, uh, harking back to the days of World War II where uh, ships taking soldiers into Tobruk became the Tobruk Ferry Run. Navy destroyers and helicopters also took part in the Vietnam War, but one of the most dangerous assignments was explosive ordnance disposal undertaken by clearance divers. Object 11 is a pair of mines made safe by Navy's clearance diving team 3. Andy, where are these today and what can you tell us about their story and that of Clearance Diving Team 3? Well, RAN Clearance Diving Team 3 consisted of 49 men across eight deployments to Vietnam between February 1967 and May 1971. And Vietnam was the first conflict in which uh, the Australian Navy had deployed a clearance diving team in war. These two mines, the Birdcage and the Soviet BMP-2, are memorable objects and excellent artefacts to best tell the story of the Royal Australian Navy's Clearance Diving Team 3 operations in Vietnam. These two mines were uh, recently donated uh, to the Australian War Memorial's National Collection by the ADF Dive School, formerly the Royal Australian Navy Dive School at HMAS Penguin. And right now they're uh, also in storage at uh, the Mitchell Annex, uh, awaiting uh, updating of the Vietnam Gallery where they'll be included to tell the diver's story. The birdcage, or the river impression mine, is about 48 centimetres tall and 12 centimetres wide at its base. <coughs> At the top is a metal wire enclosure, resembling a birdcage, and hence the mine's name. Within the cage is an inflated bladder, and both the bladder and the cage are connected to the upper chamber, which houses the internal firing mechanism. The lower chamber is designed to receive pressurised air from the upper chamber via one-way blurter valves, which result in the mine detonating. The lower chamber also cont contains the battery, which is the power source for the explosive detonation. So when a watercraft moves forward, it produces forward and downward bow wave pressure. This downward pressure acts upon the inflated main bladder of the mine, forcing air from that bladder into the lower chamber's second bladder via the blurter valves. As the boat passes over the mine and the bow wave pressure diminishes, the pressure in the top chamber subsequently drops, but the air is unable to return to its original pressure due to the one-way nature of the blurter valves. With more air now in the lower bladder, the change in pressure causes that bladder to expand and push on a diaphragm which moves and closes an electrical circuit providing the current to detonate the mine. The main charge of the birdcage mine is attached externally to the bottom of the mine via some pad eyes and it was, could consist of a, of a range of usually captured military ordnance, uh, demolition blocks, satchel blags of explosives or similar items suitable for use in water. This type of mine is particularly relevant to those Australian clearance divers who are attached to the United States Explosive Ordnance Disposal and South Vietnamese Explosive Ordnance Disposal Units in the shallow waters of the Cure Viet region of One Corps near the de demilitarised zone. 
The use of the birdcage mines by the Viet Cong in this area resulted in the Allies losing control of the associated waterways until they were cleared. The second mine, the BMP-2, consists of an aluminium circular hemisphere case with a carrying handle. The case is about 25.5 centimetres in diameter and about 11.5 centimetres high. There's two brackets for time-delayed fuses at one end, while at the other end is a bracket which holds an anti-removal fuse. On the bottom of the mine is a circular steel shipping plate with 44 magnets to attach the mine to the target hole. The complete assembly weighs 6.6 kilos and the main charge consists of 3 kilos of cast tritonal covered on top and bottom by a 25mm layer of TNT pellets. The mine contains two delay firing fuses and an anti-removal fuse. And to uh, provide some um, perspective on the diver's story in uh, Vietnam, I'll, I'll relate to you the story of, of how this BMP-2 came to be in custody of the Royal Australian Navy. So on the 23rd of May 1969, Chief Petty Officer Rashley, Able Seaman Garrett and Able Seaman I were called out at about 1.30 in the morning after a report that enemy swimmers had penetrated the Vung Tau port area. The Viet Cong were attempting to mine the DeLong Wharf and the ships alongside, one of which was the MV Heredia, an 8,000 tonne, fully loaded ammunition ship. On their arrival at the wharf, a swimmer had already been captured. Reporting suggested, however, that another swimmer remained at large. Furthermore, the divers were advised that what appeared to be an explosive charge was suspended between the wharf and the Heredia. Despite the presence of another swimmer, Abel Seaman Garrett entered the water to investigate the suspected mine against the hull of Heredia. He found it. It was a metal box about twice the size of a shoebox, hanging by a wire attached to the wharf. When he was getting out of the water to report what he had found, Garrett and the remainder of the team heard a low-water explosion. He then returned to the water to find that the homemade mine had been blown open by a partial detonation of the booster charge for the main explosive, which, fortunately for everyone that was on that wharf, had failed to detonate. On removal from the water, it was estimated the improvised mine held about another 60 pounds of explosive, which really, realistically would have had a devastating effect on the ammunition ship Heredia. In a further underwater search of the area, Able Seaman I identified the Russian BMP-2 limpet mine attached to the wharf. This he removed and, much to the concern of the embarked personnel, brought back to his support boat. It was found to be unarmed, probably as the enemy swimmers had been detected at an early stage of their attack. The second enemy swimmer was eventually captured and revealed that a further Russian limpet mine had been laid. This was unable to be found by the divers until four days later when it was washed ashore some five miles downstream, but it too hadn't been armed. The BMP-2 was a new mine uh, of its type uh, and it was the first time it was found during the Vietnam War and subsequently Clearance Diving Team 3 were responsible for its exploitation. Thanks Andy. There are three earlier Australian Navy history podcasts on the work of the clearance divers in Vietnam and I highly recommend them to our listeners. Object 12 is the only one of the 15 objects that can still go to sea. Peter, what is it and where is she? Well, the object is the attack class patrol boat HMAS Advance, and she's actually part of the Australian National Maritime Museum's historic fleet at Darling Harbour in Sydney. Now, Advance was the third of 20 attack class patrol boats commissioned into the REM between 1967 and 1969. Now, this was an era in which Australia was taking on greater responsibility in the Asia-Pacific region, 
And our recent experiences during the Himalayan emergency in Confrontasi illustrated a need for smaller patrol-type vessels. So the attack-class patrol boats were one of several acquisitions in the 1960s that reflected that greater regional focus. The attack-class proved to be very capable vessels and were used mainly for maritime security and surveillance, border protection, fishery patrol duties, uh, as well as search and rescue operations and littoral and inshore survey operations as required. So she had quite a varied range of operations. They represented an evolution in high-speed patrol boat design away from the sort of uh, short-range petrol-driven craft to more medium-range diesel boats. They drew upon existing patrol boat designs from the USA and Britain but were modified to suit Australian conditions uh, using more commercially available components. Considering that the area of operations that they would be working in in northern Australian waters is very remote, uh, the more components that they could use that were readily available, the better. So Advance herself was commissioned on the 24th of February 1968 at Maryborough in Queensland and she enjoyed quite an interesting career. Apart from her fisheries patrol, she once spent a week and a half shadowing a Russian trawler off the Gulf of Carpentaria which was suspected of being a spy vessel. Uh, she conducted hydrographic surveys in the top end, she conducted search and rescue operations for civilian vessels in distress and she was even involved in the filming of the television series Patrol Boat. Uh, she was also in Darwin Harbour uh, when Cyclone Tracy hit over Christmas in 1974. She ended up weathering the cyclone at storm. Uh, sorry, she ended up weathering the cyclone at sea, and came out of it with relatively minor damage, and I'm sure quite a few frayed nerves as well. Some of her sister ships, however, were not so lucky. HMAS Arrow was wrecked under Stokes Hill Wharf, and two sailors lost their lives: Petty Officer Leslie Catton and Able Seaman Ian Rennie. So the attack class was superseded by the larger Fremantle class patrol boats in the early 80s, and Advance became a reserve training ship in 1986. She was transferred to the Maritime Museum in 1988 in a fully operational condition and, as you mentioned, Greg, she's still uh, maintained and capable of putting to sea today. So the attack class established kind of a new operational environment in terms of maritime patrol and surveillance in Australian waters and it's now recognised as one of the primary operational responsibilities of the RAN. Thanks, Peter. Staying with you, we'll move on to uh, object number 13. The largest Australian Defence Force operation since the Vietnam War was the Australian-led Interfet or International Force operations in East Timor in 1999. It's also been the subject of an earlier Australian Naval History podcast. It's another flag in our collection. What is? Where is it? Well, I have to admit that I'm not completely sure how many flags signed by Nobel Peace Prize laureates are in the War Memorials collection, but I would imagine it's not too many. Uh, the item we're referring to here is an REM White Henson signed by Dr. Jose Ramos Horta. So once again, as you mentioned, this series did an excellent two-part episode on the REM's involvement in Interfet, so I won't go into too much detail here. But as a quick overview, Interfet included contingents from 22 nations, 10 of which provided naval assets. 14 REM ships were involved, as well as embarked fleet air, fleet air arm aircraft, two clearance diving teams and the Hydrographic Office Detached Survey Unit. It was a watershed deployment, not just for the REM, but for the Australian Defence Force in general, for two main reasons. Firstly, it was the largest single deployment of Australian military forces overseas since World War II. And secondly, it was the first time that Australia had provided the core force for a UN-mandated multinational peace enforcement operation. It indicated a willingness on the part of the Australian government to deploy Australian defence assets overseas in a manner that we really hadn't seen before. Not as a junior partner, as was normally the case, but as a leader, as the main contributor and lead nation. And the deployment was an unqualified success, much to the credit of all those involved. 
In many ways, Interfet set the standard for later similar regional deployments to places like the Solomon Islands, for example, and indeed again to Timor-Leste in 2006 under the auspices of Operation Astute. Now, one of the iconic parts of that deployment was the deployment of the fast sea lift catamaran HMAS Jarvis Bay. Jarvis Bay was commissioned in June 1999 under a two-year lease for logistics operations and over the course of a commission operated primarily between Australia and East Timor. Uh, she would make the trip between Darwin and Dili in about 11 hours and she became affectionately known as the Dili Express. She completed 107 trips between Darwin and Dili covering around 100,000 nautical miles. She carried 20,000 passengers, 430 military vehicles and delivered around 5,600 tonnes of stores. So the incident at the War Memorial was signed by the crew of Jarvis Bay after her last run to Dili. And along with the, sig- uh, the, the, the signatures on the flag is the signature of the future president of Timor-Leste, Jose Ramos-Horta, uh, at about two o'clock off the Federation Star on the incident. Oh, thanks, Peter. Very interesting. Turning to our penultimate object, there's an old Navy saying that you can judge a ship by its boats. This means her appearance, seamanship, Smartness of drill and punctuality of the crew are all reflected on her parent ship. Object 14 is a modern iteration of the ship's boat. It's a rigid hull inflatable boat, commonly known as a rib. Rib 1791 is held at the Australian War Memorial and has quite a backstory. Andy, over to you. What is this backstory? Well, Greg, today we still do judge our ships by their boats. And the thing is, the ship's boats have significantly changed since this uh, terminology came into uh, Navy parlance. Uh, So this rigid hull inflatable boat was donated to the Australian War Memorial uh, by the Royal Australian Navy in 2020, and it was brought out of the Middle East. um, And it is being planned by the gallery developers to be uh, the centrepiece of a uh, boarding party exhibition in the new galleries under development. But rigid hull inflatable boats, or as you have uh, quite rightly said, ribs, uh, provide the Royal Australian Navy surface combatants with an over-horizon interception and boarding capability. This rib, rib 1791, is a derivative of the REN rib 7 model, which was in service with the REN from 2002. It's constructed of glass reinforced fibreglass hull, and an inflatable gunnel, or collar, of reinforced fabric. The Rib 7 is a light, strong design capable of carrying a payload, as I said before, well over the horizon. It displaces over 2 tonnes, is 7.42 metres long, and has a beam of 2.74 metres, but only draws 55 centimetres, and is powered by a Volvo Penta Duoprop stern drive with contra-rotating propellers. This rib, 1791, had a top speed of 26 knots, it's about 48 kilometres an hour, and at an economical speed of 15 knots, about 28 kilometres an hour, had a range of 75 nautical miles, which is about 140 kilometres. The rib was fitted with a radar, a GPS plotter, VHF radio, and a small calibre automatic weapon could also be mounted in the bow. Rib 1791 was capable of carrying a fully kitted 10-person boarding team, and was th- this one was the Mio Hot Spare from 2003. What this means is uh, when a ship in the operational theatre, uh, one of their ribs broke down or became unserviceable, this rib was then uh, attached to that ship to replace the broken uh, unit. And this rib saw service in multiple ships including HMAS Anzac, Manura and Canimbala. 
By the end of the first decade of the 2000s, uh, these Rib 7s, however, were, were being replaced with more capable Juliet 3 or J3 jet rib. The J3 hull and collar was of a similar design to the Rib 7, this one, but it was powered by a water jet and was capable of a top speed of 40 knots, which is about 75 kilometres an hour, and, has, and the new ribs have a range of about 200 nautical miles or about 370 kilometres. Thanks, Andy. We've now come to our final object, and it's with a very nice symmetry. This year, 2022, is the 75th anniversary of the fleet air arm, and our final object is a Seahawk helicopter. Tiger 7.5 is now on display at the Australian National Maritime Museum. Peter, what is her story? Well, I think it's fair to say that the Seahawk S70B2 is one of the iconic aircraft of the fleet air arm. It was highly capable, highly re reliable aircraft and uniquely deployed operationally to the Middle East in 1990 before its parent squadron, 816 Squadron, had recommissioned. So the Seahawks were acquired to replace the Wessel Wessex helicopters in the anti-submarine warfare, surface surveillance and targeting and search and rescue roles in the late 1980s. So ultimately they had a pretty wide range of operational capabilities. The Seahawk Introduction and Transition Unit was established in 1988 to train air crews and conduct trials of the aircraft. And it was in this guise that two Seahawks embarked in HMA ships uh, Darwin and Adelaide when they deployed to the Middle East in 1990 for Operation Damask 1. So those ships were relieved by HMA ships Sydney and Brisbane in uh, December, uh, also with Seahawks embarked, and they were involved in Gulf War 1 in 1991. So 816 Squadron is the only RAN unit to have earned a battle honour without technically having been in commission. The Seahawks were near a constant presence in the Middle East for most of their RAN service. Across the 16 aircraft acquired by the RAN, the Seahawks flew around 88,000 hours, predominantly embarked in the Navy's Adelaide and Anzac-class frigates until their retirement in December 2017. And they've actually been replaced by another Seahawk helicopter. It's the uh, MH60R variant. So Tiger 7-5 had a pretty active career. It had made multiple deployments to the Middle East. But one of the events that it's most known for is its part in what became Australia's largest peacetime search and rescue operation during the ill-fated 1998 Sydney to Hobart yacht race. Now, the race competitors had encountered severe weather conditions as they approached Bass Strait on the 27th of December, and many of them found it had needed to be rescued. Tiger 7-5 was embarked in HMAS Newcastle and was one of two Seahawks that participated in the search and rescue efforts over the ensuing three days, along with two REN Sea King helicopters, as well as RAAF and civilian aircraft. More than 50 sailors were rescued, around 40 of which were winched to safety by helicopter. And of the 155 starters, 66 yachts were forced to retire from the race, five of which were lost at sea, and tragically six sailors lost their lives. But the result could have been a whole lot worse were it not for the efforts of the aircrew and maintainers of Tiger 7-5, as well as all of the other units involved in the operation. Thanks, Peter. The Navy's role in the 1998 Sydney to Hobart yacht race is told in an earlier and quite enthralling Australian Naval History podcast, which features part of Tiger 7-5 aircrew. Well, that completes just one slice of the rich and diverse history of the Royal Australian Navy through 15 objects. We hope you enjoyed it. Photographs and more details of the 15 objects can be seen on the Australian Naval Institute website. Just search for the RAN in 15 objects and you'll find it. We also encourage you to visit the objects if you can. My thanks to Peter Djokovic and Commander Andy Schroeder for taking us on this journey. My thanks also to the Australian War Memorial for their assistance in preparing the 100th episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Today's podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales with the assistance 
of the university's creative media unit. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us and if you like this podcast, please let other people know of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.